All right, it's the end of the year in our top 10 with um, Brian Eggert. And Brian knows he's been on before that before we begin uh, dedication time. So what would you like to dedicate this episode to? Um, I'm going to split my dedication, uh, one Wonderful. to my wife, uh, who's always there at my side, and uh, second to uh, my dad, who actually um, who died last week um, oh, after Brian. kind of a long... Um, battle with cancer and heart issues and lung issues and um and yeah so he passed away last week um a week from today actually uh so actually a lot of my top 10 list has been kind of reframed uh because of that uh just because yeah. he's been on my mind and, and uh you know one of the movies on my list is the last movie i watched with him um and another one is you know kind of about dealing with dads and whatnot and health issues so um yeah, that that uh, he's been on my mind a lot. Very sorry for your last name, Brian. Thanks. Um, yeah, on that note, I would like to dedicate this episode to all the wonderful movies with female film directors. We had fifty-two full feature film uh, films directed by females, and that's probably the most ever um, in the history of film. Fifty-two of uh, full features by female directors, and I'd like to dedicate that episode. Would like to see. Plenty more, and there are some film lists on mine that have directed by female directors. So, me too. Wonderful. Uh, let's start the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the St. Paul Filmcast with your host Nick Palatichuk. Each episode, Nick interviews filmmakers and other artists from the Twin Cities area. I'm Carly Palillo, and thanks for listening, and thanks for finding us. Please give us a review and feel free to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, lights, camera, action. Okay, everybody, welcome back. And today we have with me... Uh, Brian Eggert from DeepFocusReview.com. Wonderful. And if you can catch me, I am on YouTube with Kyle Gothy, another film critic, with his uh, GOAT film reviews. Um, The show is called Kyle Nick on Film. You can catch uh, us on YouTube and get to see what I look like. Uh, Sadly, you don't get to see what Brian gets to look like on this show. But today, we get to do our annual countdown of top 10 films. Now, understand we're recording today. This is the 28th. There are some movies that still... We have unable to see simply because they haven't been available in the U.S. that are on some people's list. And that kind of shortcuts the, you know, my list as well just because of the availability. You know, this is actually it was in February. I got to see the worst person in the world. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of categorizing that as a movie for me on this on this year, too. Oh, that makes sense. So yeah. eligible. But it's the complexity of it is because a lot of other movies come in January, but they've been kind of released here in the that little window is a little um, different but for everybody. That's always the case here in yeah. Minnesota. There's always a few, usually international films, that don't get released here until you know late January, early February. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that didn't come out until like March Yes, uh, uh, in the year that it came out. And it was, you know, yeah. I, I had, by then I had already made my top 10 list and it didn't feel appropriate to put it on the next years list so that just got kind of lost in between years yeah so there's some overseas films that i haven't had opportunity to see and that one of them is after sun which i i think everybody's just it's in their top five a lot of them i just haven't been able to see because it's not available to me yet or eo i've been able to see that one or return to soul is another one yeah Um, broker is another one that actually just came to mind that hasn't opened in minnesota yet and that should be out uh, in the next few weeks actually and as well as uh, from France, uh, Saint Omer, 
yep. which is uh, I think you've probably seen as well. Uh, yeah. I haven't seen that yet, actually. Okay. That's that's on my on my to watch list, um, which just even since we've been talking has grown a little bit. So uh, <laughs> just reminding me that uh, there's still a few things out there to see, and you know, of course, there are hundreds of films released every year. We can't possibly see everything. Right. Uh, there's also always gaps in people's viewing. All you can do is see everything you can and and make your list and, and move on. I know it's an encapsulating try to encapsulate the entire year yeah but if you just want to summarize the experience because i think this is one of the best years for films it's I, to compress 10 for me has been very difficult i don't know about you you've seen much more than i have yeah uh i reviewed i think 135 movies this year and uh new releases and saw you know plenty more uh, i probably saw 200 new releases uh or more um so yeah, it's been a great year for movies. Uh, there's been stuff that I really enjoyed that wouldn't even break my top twenty-five this year, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's hard to you know a lot of people only see a few movies in theaters a year mm -hmm. uh, these days. So um, I think a lot of people got out to see you know Top Gun Maverick and and uh, a few of the bigger you know blockbusters and whatnot. But yeah, the popcorn flex, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff that fell in between the cracks, and uh, hopefully this our lists uh, give you something to think about and something to seek out. Yeah, I was just talking. We just did an, a recording of a video for with Kyle, and we talked about we could just do top ten horror films of the year. Absolutely, and we yeah. <laughs> just horror films, and then we'd be already be we wouldn't be mirrored. There's so many different ones to pluck from. Absolutely. Just from that I mean, category. I actually, on that note, I kind of made just a list of horror films that I'll, I'll just maybe quickly read if that's okay. I would love it. I would love it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Crimes of the Future, Bones and All, Men, Barbarian, Bodies, 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 Piggy, uh, You Won't Be Alone, The Black Phone, uh, Deadstream is one that was just streaming exclusive that was a lot of fun, okay. um, See No Evil, Sissy, uh, smile, pray. I mean, the list goes on and on. And yeah, it's, it's been an outstanding year for horror, probably, you know, the best since I've been writing. Right. Yeah. And I think we're getting into, and I just want to encapsulate a lot of horror is the protagonists, or although the antagonists, I would say, the villains, they're not in sophisticated plans. They're almost just out there just to cause havoc. They're even if they had a sophisticated plan, it crumbles. We're so used to in the early two thousands of villains and Marvel villains have these sophisticated plans that executed point by point numbers, you know. But here, I think the, kind of the change of this almost like a clunky way of going about it, and or like a, I mentioned, like X or Pearl or. Sure. Um, even like Hellraiser, the, it's not a sophisticated plan. It's almost like just to tear and terrorize and will fall out what happens next. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, yeah I could see that. Uh, I think there are some instances of, of taking horror to, you know, the first two that I just mentioned, you know, Crimes of the Future and Bones and All. And, and we'll maybe talk about those later. But yeah. uh, those are taking horror and using the you know, the, the quote unquote horror as metaphor for something. Uh, and I think though, those are the horror movies that are really powerful and that will really stay with you. Yeah. And I think we really, even, even the ones where I didn't expect to be good. I know I, know I would have been, I was keen to sh the scream. I think a lot of other, and then we got another one. I have a forest, right. Of course. Sure. Um, and then I was really kind of surprised with the Batman. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. That was really a different perspective. Obviously, when Nolan does something like that, you want to do something opposite. Yeah. Um, 
great sequels have come out as well. I'm thinking like Glass Onion. Yeah, that was a, that was a great movie. And um, um, I, I really enjoyed Batman as well. Um, yeah, wasn't a huge fan of Scream. I know, uh, I know. We, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. uh, I think when you've seen enough of them, <laughs> right? You know, I not to turn this top ten list into a dig at Scream, but uh, I no. just felt it was a little too dour. Uh, and I, I get that it's kind of like playing on elevated horror, but I just didn't have much fun with it. Yeah. Um, that was my critique of my analysis is of great scream. Sure. It started as a parody. Now it's considered legit horror when it started as a parody of horror. Sure. So now it's considered, now you put it in the horror section right. instead of comedy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Nev Campbell and David Arquette are just kind of standing around looking dour and saying that they've seen this before. And, right. you know, there's, uh, I just, I didn't laugh really throughout the whole movie. And I think that's a problem with a scream movie. Especially you want to see, yeah. yeah. Especially for what it came from, where its origins from. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I've yet to see Empire of Light or Armageddon Time. You were really positive on those. Uh, Empire of Light was fine, I would say. I, I didn't right. love it. Um, Armageddon Time, though, I absolutely loved, and it was very close to being on my top ten list. Uh, okay. Not quite there. There was a lot of stuff that uh, that I would just, you know, kind of volley on and off the list as I was making it for this show. Um, and I, it was just, you know, rocked by indecision in a lot of cases. It's and, compressed, and I, and I like to say this is healthy because I've seen a lot of other people's lists, and they're so different. Yeah. Uncompared to last year, I would automatically know what your top five was last year, just because of the content and how much we had to pull from. Right. But everybody's is just vastly different top tens, and this is yeah. exciting. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Awesome. Likewise. Um, of course, you're the guest, so i love to hear. Um, if you have any honorable mentions before we get to the tens, please sure. shout them out. Um, any of them in the teens that you have? Yeah. Uh, so a few. Uh, you mentioned After Sun. I really liked After Sun. Uh, I, it wasn't quite a, you know, a four-star movie for me, but it was very close. I also really um, enjoyed... Uh, as you mentioned, Armageddon Time, uh, Triangle of Sadness was very close. Was on my list at several points to the to, to the extent that I even made notes about it in case I was going to change it last minute. Um, and that got it went through the whole Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, um, it won the Palm Door. Palm Door. Uh, everybody loved it. Yeah. Yeah, and I I really uh, love its message. I love you know Ruben Osland. Most of his movies are just outstanding. Um, I just wanted to make a a, a few choices, I guess. <laughs> yeah. They're last minute. It's hard to do 10 out of like 100 that you've seen, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't think I mentioned Men. Uh, Men was another one where, you know, I think that was a kind of a divisive film. If I remember, that's the same director for... Um, Annihilation. And yes. uh, he wrote the screenplays for um, Sunshine and 28 Days Later. Right. He also directed Ex Machina, Alex, that was a, Alex Garland. <laughs> yes, Alex Garland, right. There's a very surreal component to it. I think that's what he starts as a colonel of what surrealism. And then he gets back into realism. Then we go back to, to, to yeah. surrealism a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there were just things in that movie that I hadn't seen in a movie before. Um, that were so interesting and and uh, when you, you look know, at the trailer, it looks everything looks so foreboding. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, yeah. I saw it twice in the theater, and both times there were people who walked out. Um, one was a press screening with like you know six people in it, and one of the people walked out. 
Um, and then another time was just like a live audience and several people walked out. Now, uh, if you say people walking out, now I want to. <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen it yet. Yeah. Uh, it's it's pretty fast. Like, you know, you could either hate the movie or, or love it. And I, I wouldn't blame either reaction. I think it's, you know, message is pretty unambiguous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that, it gets a lot of criticism. But uh, I, I did enjoy its imagery and um, was exposed to something, like I said, that I've never seen in, in a movie before. And before we get into uh, you mentioned um, Crimes of the Future. That's something we've always seen is like David Cronenberg going back to what he likes is yeah. body horror. Well, I don't want to talk yeah. too much about that because yeah. that, that's, uh, that's going to be on my list here. Gotcha. Whatever. All right. So uh, for my autumn mentions, I, have, um, I really was fascinated with All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay. I really like the camera work here. And, of course, it's a, it does get the comparison to 1917 because it just released so soon. Mm-hmm. And it has kind of the same aesthetic, but it's the remake. And I think they capture the essence of what the book is sure. all about, these tremendous events happening to you. And then the, all the report is just nothing. Yeah, nothing's happening with all this cataclysm and death is around. And the recruitment is supposed to be this commodity. Um and that's a good, healthy unimprevention for me. And if I say for those one big minus is it just the, the, the dialogue com- with the aristocrats negotiating the deal sure, um, kind of took me away. But I would like the intensity of the battles. I really liked it a little bit more than 1917. It was a little bit gritty. I don't think anybody got out of there without a clean shirt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I liked it more than 1917, too. Um, I think I liked the, the, the politician scenes, if only because, you know, it's kind of a class class distinction where you know men are in chateaus and the streetcars right eating well and you know negotiating their deals nice contrast right yeah well while the grunts are off getting you know slaughtered and their pawns in a in a war you know that last scene toward the end where or that last battle toward the end where it's just you know i have i have a whim so i'm going to order these people to to death ultimately uh just so we can have a you know, one last victory in this in this war was yeah. so um, was pretty um, poignant, I think. And then the the beginning of just you're just a part of the cog in the machine of just taking the yeah. shirt from the dead man, restitch it, resewn it, take the name off, and then right. hand it off to the next guy. It is part of this effort. Yeah, it seems you're anonymous, and Paul tries not to be an anonymous part of this. Try to be a, a unique person, and he's part of the machine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, another nomination for me is Barbarian. I really love Barbarian. Yeah. And I loved it that it's comfortable with cliches. It was a cliche from beginning to end. Sure. And it's funny that it works when you have so many cliches. And, I'm, you know, if you want to be a writer, embrace your cliches. We're all going to stand. Don't go into the basement. Oh, my God, don't open that door. Don't go down the tunnel. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't stay with a man you don't know. And, of course, she does it. And we, we, we got kind of to get an offshoot as well. We get Justin Long to kind of change the beat as well. But I did, I did thoroughly enjoy Barbarian. I think it was actually benefit for me to see it in the theater too. Yeah, yeah. Th- I mean, this is one of the best theater experiences that I had all year. Actually, I mean, people shouting at the screen, you know, don't, don't, what are you doing, you idiot, and you know that that sort of stuff uh, was super fun. Um, you know, in in any other screening, you'd be annoyed with people talking, but it just added to sort of the fun terror of that movie. Yeah. And then Justin Long, you know, he had a great year uh, between Barbarian, uh, House of Darkness, where he plays a similar kind of character in sort of a, a vampire scenario um, by, mm-hmm. by writer-director Neil LeBute. And then uh, just, you know, earlier this month, I think, uh, Christmas with the Campbells, 
which is uh, exclusive just... to AMC Plus, um, <laughs> was actually like just a like a ray of sunshine. It was so fun. Um, Christmas with the Campbells. Yeah, After, it was co- co-written by Vince Vaughn. Uh, you know, right. just a little raunchy at times, and of um, course, yeah, of course, of yeah, course, of course, right. And Justin Long plays this like rugged guy, which is against type, obviously, and it's so funny because he's playing against type. So I'd recommend people check that out. It was a fun. Yeah. Th- that was my favorite like holiday movie of the year. I didn't notice the play on the name Barbarian with uh, the the t- the tagline Airbnb until Kyle pointed out to me. Oh, that's interesting. That's you know they use that to Airbnb to schedule houses yeah. and everything. But he, I watched it three times and it's it, I know Kyle dis- doesn't like the title. I do. I really like it because what is the Barbarian in the movie? I think is patriarchal system of. Sure. Uh, you know, all these avenues of women, this woman just wants to go out to do a thing. It is all these things that you have to be careful not to do. You know, neighborhoods checking out, you know, all this stuff that you have to be on your guard constantly. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, one little slip and it's all done for. Yeah. And then I think the uh, the street was also named like Bar- Barbary, I believe. Barbary, right? Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the, yeah. the, the monster is a barbarian. Um yeah. And then another honor mention, of course, I mentioned uh, the Batman, but another one I'm really a big fan of, Joanne Hogg. She just did with uh, Tilda Swinton, Eternal Daughter. And that's kind of a sleeper. It's under the radar. I don't think it's going to get a lot of accolades, but I really enjoy, enjoy how she directs. And it's Tilda doing two different roles. She's doing the mom and the daughter. And it's I, I, do, I do like that. I mean, if it's a gothic mystery in a mansion, haunted mansion. Of course, I did like it. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, Joanna Hogg is, you know, this is kind of a continuation of her, you know, Souvenir Part 1 and 2. Yeah, um, I did like Souvenir 1 and 2. Also. Yes, uh, yeah, I, I, those are movies that continue to grow in my estimation. And that was very close to being on my list as well. I also think that uh, the dog, uh, Louise, which is Tilda Swinton's dog, has like such a great per- <laughs> great dog performance. That was my favorite dog performance. We did get a lot of great animal year. performances this year. The yeah. Crocodile and Pearl, the, the donkey and Banshees, <laughs> yeah. and the, yeah. the dog. And, yeah, so hot shout out to you to animals. All right, with that, honorable mentions, uh, we'll get started with the top 10. Uh, this is a great time for us to take a break. We're going to take a small little break and be back with the top 10. Hi, this is Mouse. I'm Weens. And we are two sisters with the Mouse and Weens podcast. Nice and clear. <laughs> Come take a listen. It's fun. We talk about life, love, and pubic hair. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> and all sorts of fun family memories and stuff. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> We're on all the platforms. And we hope you take a listen. Bye. Bye. Welcome back. And now more with the show. We're back, and of course, Brian's going to start out with our top 10. So, Brian, what is your 10th best film of the year? All right, I'm going to start out with my only cheat. Uh, And my only cheat is uh, a tie between Ty West's uh, X and Pearl. Wonderful. Um, These are two of the, you know, most 
fun experiences that I had at the theater this year. Um, they're, they're two parts of a soon to be trilogy released by a 24. And I think, you know, any one of them wouldn't be on this list, but together they're, uh, greater than the, I like that you put them together. Yeah. I I think they, you know, they, they go together so well, obviously they're, you know, a, a prequel and, a and, uh, the, the sequel, um, the sequel was released first. Um, so, and they just kind of came up with that with Pearl on the set of X and while they were kind of dealing with, with quarantine issues, uh, due to COVID and, and, uh, they worked out that script and, you know, shot it on the cheap. And, um, I, I can't really decide which one is better at this point. I think Ty listened to our episode. We repeat, uh, his movie, uh, Valley of Violence. And I was kind of a little harsh on it. Oh, really? And I think he learned from all the, you know, from that movie kind of, learning on the go what you want to do with that, you know, cusp. And I, I think he's finally listened to the actors. Obviously, Mia had some great input of what we should do. Yeah. Um, and I think he's learning as he's going. He's, I mean, it's great that the Blumhouse banked on him to learn. Because yeah. the Valley of Violence, I was not a big fan of. I had no idea. No. <laughs> right. And uh, but, and then you come out with these two things. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I think they're his best films yet. Um, I, I've... I've been sort of not hard, but just a little annoyed that he's so interested in pastiche in the past. And for whatever reason, I've just sort of gotten on board uh, and come around on him. Uh, And these two examples, you know, X is more Texas Chainsaw Massacre and and, 70 slasher and Buddy Nights and and uh, Pearl is a Douglas Sirk melodrama, you know, just with a touch of psycho in there. But um you know, just all their ideas about sexual repression and, and liberation and, and ambition, uh, career ambition in fascinating ways. Um, and again, Mia Goth is just incredible in both. In both. Um, yeah. It's really like three distinct performances that she's giving. Um, so, yeah, these were in, in a great year of horror. I think these were some of the best and most memorable and the ones where I have been telling people to see them because I know anyone who watches them is is probably going to enjoy them as opposed to say men which is very divisive um, but I, th- I think horror fans will really enjoy these it was fun enjoyable experience seeing pearl in a theater because yeah. it's horrific but it's kind of funny as well her delusion yeah right it's all in her delusion and then everything just dynamos in effect right her, boy, her boyfriend's like, I'll see you next time. Why are you leaving me right now? What do I do wrong? What do I do? And it's like, <laughs> yeah. chill out. No, I'm going to chill out. And then she just kills him to kill. But the delusion's part of the aesthetic as well. I don't think everything looks all that nice and clean and orderly in the real world. But sure. to her, the animals are pristine. The barn is painted up to date. Everything is stacked orderly. In yeah. fact, her house is all symmetrical, nice and balanced. And I think that's part of a delusion because when she sees a movie... She hears the sound, and there's no. And we know in the twenty, there are no sound yet in films. She's always it's all part of it, the dance number she does for the church. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's her constant delusions. I think we're getting the projection of it as well as, as also, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. fascinating. Um, I mean, both are, are are fascinating in their respective oh, ways. Yeah. But uh, and there, you know, the fact that Wes can you know, uh, uh, apply a different styles to different films and yet they feel connected is, is right. pretty fascinating. Yeah. Especially when you actually start in front of the mirror. Yeah. It almost starts like, I was like, you boogie nice. Boogie oh, nice a little bit. Right. Yeah. But you always start with the mirror reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Mia Goth, she sold me soon that speech when she sat at the dining room table with her cousin. 
Sure. That was a great speech, you know. I'm not going to get every, I'm not going to get nice things, you know, that, yeah. So, uh, number 10, we talked about it for pre-production, uh, but, uh, I just reviewed it for Kyle Nicholas film. Women talking is top 10 for me. Uh, I know it's not on below for you, but I really like the content of this story. Mm-hmm. We are talking about, it's very, not flashy filmmaking, not really flashy aesthetics and everything like that. But the story and the dialogue is really driving it. I also think the minus for it is the poster in the title is not really attractive. <laughs> I think it takes away like, you know, I've been talking, why do I want to watch that? And then the poster doesn't really reveal the content of all at all. You just have to. But um, I really like the captain. I do like Sarah Pauly. I think she does very emotional direction, especially when away from her, her first movie. Yeah, I would like to see her do some more. So, but we we understand there's a lot of content from the book that was just kind of omitted, or how do you translate it? Just kind of things get left out. But I do see um, anytime you got Jesse Buckley in a movie, it's going to be my top ten almost. It feels like. <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. The cast was great. The acting yeah. was great. Um, I, I think maybe my issues with it, and don't get me wrong, I like the movie. Yeah. But my issues with it uh, stem largely well from two things one you know the book is written from a man's perspective taking notes on a conversation and i feel like in an in an adaptation of that story um we're in the subjectivity of of the women throughout throughout and i think i feel like something is lost in the in the translation from book to screen um where i didn't feel like i was in the subjectivity of of the women and maybe i should have been um where each each character feels like a mouthpiece more than a fully fledged character, um, and what they're saying is compelling. And I, you know, I do like uh, all the performances in there. Yeah. But you, right, you you think there's? I agree with you. There should be something a little more more to it. Maybe the urgency to solve it before you know. Maybe that something wrap up a little more of a timeline. It seems a little more relaxed. You know, something people compared it to Twelve Angry Men, where you had a sure. compressed time to it. And yeah. I think that's maybe where we're losing people. We don't know if they can resolve this in a month, day, week, hour, right? Sure. And I think it's you try to encapsulate being timeless, trying to like, where are we exactly? I know they've taken a 2010 census, but music and clothing is outdated and isolated. Yeah. And I think that's you know that's a fascinating aspect of it. I mean, there were I think there were people and I saw it at the uh, Twin Cities Film Fest. Yeah. And there were people in the audience who you know clearly didn't know that that was a. Uh, an aspect of it they didn't know when it took place and that detail in the book is spoiled in the first like sentence or paragraph oh, wow. uh, okay. you know in the introduction really um and so when you see that when you have that moment there are people in the audience who gasp and um <laughs> yeah and that's yeah. that's the point is it seems like these are archaic times but this is going on right now and that's that's fascinating i think uh hopefully we see so many acting nominations for that Probably Jesse Buckley or Claire Foy. Yeah, I could see that. Absolutely. All right. What's uh, next for you? Uh, For me, it is The Banshees of Inertian. Oh, that's number nine. That's my number nine. Um, As I mentioned before, you know, this is maybe a little bit, this kind of raised on my list in the last few days. It was, um, you know, the last movie I watched with my dad. uh, So I, I, and he really liked it. Uh, (laughs) So that had a, you know, kind of a tender place with me. But I I do find myself, uh, I, I tend to like Martin McDonough, you know, for some of the more obvious reasons, which is, you know, his sharp dialogue and, and kind of cynical outlook and, and occasional <laughs> cynical and sharp dialogue. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
and you know he's he's occasionally morbid which i which i like you know i I enjoy really love his in bruges and seven psychopaths especially um and i think what what draws me to this is it's it's a bit of a parable for today and how uh we can't seem to accept that people don't live their lives the same way that we do um and that makes us angry and and we're too busy being you know selfish and complacent and infighting to see what's happening around us so you get these two guys who have kind of a petty squabble um in the grand scheme of things while you know just just across the way ireland is having a civil war and all these big things are happening around us, but we're too busy in fighting to really care about it. Uh, and I think that's a fascinating uh, message for today. And I think it's very relevant, despite the setting being so specific to, you know, 1923 in Ireland. It's always an afterthought. Oh, that, by the way, there's a war going on. Yeah. But yeah. this petty little conflict right here, this is the crux of my world right right. Absolutely. <laughs> right and i mean even the war you know the conditions of the war you know you've got one side that's fighting for absolute independence from british rule and the other side that's like kind of okay with it yeah. um and how do you want to live live your life do you want to be complacent and just sort of floating through life or do you want to um be independent right we don't really see the spark which started at all and with brendan gleason's character he's i don't know maybe he just had an epiphany that you know i'm about ready to kick it i want to do some things in my life yeah maybe i want to learn instruments when i want to do some things and i just don't want to do this rugged routine where colin farrell thinks how can i be more adaptable to people me more pleasant and the more he becomes a bet the more it becomes a problem for everybody right <laughs> you're too nice well now i'm gonna be a jerk whoa you are really gonna be a jerk now right yeah and it's all what are you looking for your authentic selves yeah, yeah. i think it's fascinating that he doesn't i keep saying the word fascinating i apologize it's yeah. uh, it's an overused word um but uh mcdonough keeps keeps a distance from like taking one person's side i can yeah. see brennan gleason's side you know wanting to leave a legacy and i can see colin farrell's side and wanting to just be nice and live with his animals and, and <laughs> animals have no judgment and and you know is brendan gleason just being a depressed jerk or is he you know is he tapped into something and is colin farrell wasting his life uh, you know by just living with animals and and you know living like an animal which is and i don't mean that in a negative way i mean that no. in in receiving with grace all things that come he's just he's living his life and and happy with that and an animal just sort of, you know, goes with the flow, and so does he. Right. There's a certain sophistication to that. And I think that um, Brennan Gleason's character kind of acknowledges that. You know, he goes into confession, and, and uh, you know, the priest says that <laughs> it's a great scene. animals, you know, aren't going to heaven. And he says, well, you know, that's kind of the whole problem, don't you think? Mm. Um, it's a great, I like, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a great moment. It's one of my favorite moments in, in any movie this year. Um so I think it's 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 dealing with some kind of big issues, but you know, in every detail, from the performances to the just beautiful filmmaking to the lovely music, and I, even each character, even supporting role, Dominic, who's yeah. the idiot of the vill- the, the idiot of the island, right, has great scenes and great. They all have their own unique development, their own language. Yeah, even Colin Farrell's sister and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Carrie Condon and, and Barry Keegan, they're both giving really 
great supporting performances. Yeah. Barry, uh, Barry Keegan in, in particular as the, as the kind of nitwit of the island is uh, so tragic. And, and, you know, he seems like a joke at would first. We ever, you would think you guys are going out? No, I was just kidding. Right. I, <laughs> right. Yeah. No, right. I, I knew you were going to say that. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then you got this walking cursed lady, this witch. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and I mean, all, all of these aspects or all of these characters could be jokes and you could watch it and just think it's a dark comedy. And yeah. yet I think, you know, Martin McDonough's movies and even those of his brother are slyly uh, philosophical and, you know, yeah. searching and really existential stuff. Um, and yet they're also very entertaining. And I think that's a, a, a unique balance. Uh, obviously, you look for Best Original Screenplay nomination. Yeah. Probably a nomination sure. for Colin Farrell. Yeah. He really stood out. Um, being a loser. I couldn't believe it. Of all the people, he's the kind of the, he's not really a loser. He's just trying to figure things out as well but I, maybe cinematography as well yeah, yeah i can see that it's greatly shot and i do like the colors the, the color schemes and everything and costuming so i several nominations and i think probably win best in original screenplay for me this the dialogue is so authentic it's so natural but it explains a lot of people you know yeah and then yeah i feel like uh martin mcdonough is really kind of getting out of that you know you could you could accuse his movies of being sort of Tarantino-esque. Um, right. Where's the violence? Well, I'm going to cut my finger off. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think he really immerses himself in this period, and and uh, it's yeah. different than anything he's done. All right. Uh, number nine for me is Pearl. So we Great. can move on. And I just, we got to nominate Maya for that performance any yeah. way we can. I don't know if, if because of her personal life, she's attached to Shia LaBeouf. I don't know if that's going to be a conflict, but sometimes it play weighs on Oscar nominations or not. I don't know, but huh. um, we'll see. Hopefully, it's hard to get nominated for acting in a horror movie. Yeah, but it was a really standout time for, for watching Pearl through her delusions and her pet alligator. Absolutely. So, okay, number eight for you. Uh, this one I just saw last week. Um, one fine morning by Mia Hansen Luva. Um, it opens in Minnesota at the end of January and, um, and admittedly this, you know, film may have had a bigger impact on me, uh, just, you know, due to personal recent events in my life. Um, the story follows, uh, Leah Seydoux, who had a, a, again, a great year. Um, she was a big hit at Cannes with this film. Uh, she plays a single mother who takes care of her eight year old daughter and her, uh, father, who's played by uh, Pascal Gregory, who is a uh, former philosophy professor who's um, dying of a neurodegenerative, degenerative, de- <laughs> say that three degenerative times fast. disease. Neurodegenerative disease. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. All right. So um, just oversees hospitalization and kind of move him from one hospital to another. And um, all the while she's dealing with that and kind of watching her father, um, you know, disintegrate in front of her eyes. Uh, She's she meets a, a married man and they kind of have this affair. Um, so last year Mia Hansen Luva made um, Bergman Island, which was a great which was a okay. great movie. Um, it's coming out from Criterion, I think, next month actually. Uh, and after I saw that, I just spent a lot of twenty twenty two kind of digging deep into her her body of work. I'll probably watch her uh, last four or five movies. And, um, there's always a, there's always a deeply personal and autobiographical, uh, aspect to her, to her film. It feels like, it, it sounds like more to talk about. It. It's almost like 
what Joanna Hogg does. I mean, sometimes sure. she puts her own furniture into the movies. And yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, um, Mia Hansen Luva's dad uh, died of a, a similar disease. Uh, so each one of her movies is really, you know, a reflection of something that actually happened in her life or characters that are inspired by her her um, life. This sort of auto fictional approach, and. Um, so she's in this particular movie. She's dealing with you know moving on with, from pain uh, yeah. with love, uh, and I, I found that really uh, moving. Um, her movies are very much about like the flow of life. So you kind of watch them, and they seem you know they're very realistically made, and and just kind of moving from one thing to the next in in a life. Yeah. And they're not really about big dramatic scenes or. Um, big you know arch moments they're just very grounded and they can feel a little um uh, a little maybe you know foggy because of that uh because you're just watching a slice of life but uh for whatever reason this one really stuck with me um I i think her her direction and writing is kind of a magic trick because it's so much a slice of life right when we take film logic they always said it it's always small vignettes sure and we put those small vignettes to categorize a story and that's how each scene can feel different, you know, everything. But it sounds like she plays on these small little vignettes can encapsulate one simple story or whatever. Sure. And yeah. I mean, her, her movie takes place over a period of months, but it just kind of, everything sort of breezes by fast, just sort of like life does, you know, yeah. before you know it, you know, you've moved on from whatever traumatic thing has happened and, and uh, you know, you're healing. Um, so I found that really moving. Um, I would say the most important critical thing I do when I critique movies is how you deal with time in your movies because it's such an elusive, subjective thing. Is yeah. it like an hour of a movie? You know, are we dealing with this a few months, whatever? Yeah. But it's it's always if you just are you rigid with it, are you accessible with it, or you just let it f- just naturally flow like an ocean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this one goes from, you know. Autumn to you know there's a there's a great Christmas time uh, scene, probably one of the one of the best Christmas scenes I've ever seen in a movie. That's just super tender and warm. Uh, Leah Sedu is just giving a an amazing performance. I think you know I used to not think much of her as an actress, but just in the last few years she's she's really elevated to one of my favorite performers working today, and she's she's outstanding. I I I think personally she should be in in the top five performances of the year. Well, you got to get her and Jesse Buckley in a movie. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, what was the name again? Uh, One Fine Morning. One Fine Morning. Wonderful. Uh, number eight for me is kind of very, I, a lot of people love it, hate it. I don't know why. Uh, Glass Onion for me. Okay. Uh, I know a lot of people have a disdain for Ryan Johnson already, <laughs> but if you like this kind of genre thing, almost these Agatha Christie kind of a stuff, um, obviously it did, better death on a Nile than death on a Nile. So, yeah. um, especially if you enjoy it and we know exactly what you're going to get into and it feels refreshing and new and we kind of like it. But I did thoroughly enjoy it. I got to see it in a theater. Maybe that enhances the experience rather than sitting, you know, going back and rewatching, rewatching like people like to do with this movie. Scene. But I got to see the theater and experience and then you got to go back and watch it, all the stuff that you missed. But Glass Onions, number eight for me. And hopefully we get to see more of Hugh Grant and Daniel Craig uh are they in a relationship yeah sure yeah um yeah i, I or is it butler is this butler or 
I, I really enjoyed this movie too. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun. Uh, again, I saw it in the theater in a packed theater and everybody's, you know, laughing at, at the right beats. And, and, uh, that's a great, that's a great feeling. Um, the biggest laugh was something I don't, I don't maybe because they just hold the camera because it was awkward, but Daniel Craig right next to the statue's butt got the biggest laugh. And sure. it's just kind of the, it wasn't, I don't know, maybe just because. <laughs> yeah. I also think Janelle Monet was outstanding in, in the film. She's right. got to do two different things. Giving, yeah, again, yeah. two different performances that, yeah. uh, uh, Janelle Monet is awesome and, and pretty right. much everything she does is great. So I, exactly. uh, it right. was, it was awesome to see her. Yeah. And I just like, it's kind of fresh, you know, exactly what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's great. We're probably going to get a few more of them. Like Dana Gregg says, if you guys still like it, I'll keep doing them. Yeah, yeah. And they're cl- everybody's clearly having a blast doing it. And I think that makes yeah. a difference compared to James Bond movies where he just sort of looks like he's drudging his way through the experience, especially in the last few. Yeah. He really looks like he's enjoying himself uh, playing Benoit Blanc. And uh, I think that's contagious. Well, if you didn't remember, that's the second movie we saw Ethan Hawke wearing a mask in 2022. yeah. yeah. <laughs> That was a little distract. That was I found myself like a little distracted with with Ethan Hawke being in it. Like, 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 Where would he go? Right? Is, is he, he coming back? Is what, what's going on? Why was he in this? Um, I mean, the Hugh Grant thing that was you know cute and funny and just as a as a funny aside. But yeah. I, f- I felt like suspicious about about Ethan Hawke being there. But I, I guess when you can get Netflix to pay two hundred million dollars for your murder mystery, you, you get, get yeah. yeah you get random stars to appear in your movie and then. And, you know, Angela Lansbury zooming with you when you're in the tub. Absolutely. Hats off. Come on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Number seven for you. Uh, number seven was Tar, Todd Field's. Wonderful. Uh, third film in, what, 21 years yeah. after uh, In the Bedroom and Little Children. Um, I've seen Little Children. I haven't seen In the Bedroom. Either. In the Bedroom was just outstanding as well. Uh, all of his movies are, are just top tier for me. Um, um this is the kind of movie that really got people talking, and I thought yeah. the conversation was interesting because everyone is certain about what this movie is saying, and some people are saying that it's you know defending problematic artists and championing championing the notion of you know keeping the artist and uh, art separate, and then some people say the opposite that it's uh, about condemning artists who abuse their power. Um, I thought it was all about pride. I really did. Sure. And, <laughs> and yeah. w- what's cool about this is that s- people are so convinced of their opinion about this film either way and what it's saying that it's a testament to, I think, Todd Field's skill as a director and screenwriter that he's allowing people to feel that way. Yeah. Uh, mo- I think most, re- yeah. most movies you watch... Uh, you know what... Uh, yeah. You all, know what you're watching. We all agree what Pearl's right. all about. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think this is, you know, I think it's asking questions, which is, uh, you, you know, unique in today's cinema. Um, it's asking questions about predatory behavior. Um, are we looking at power dynamics differently because Lydia Tarr is a lesbian? Um, it's asking, it's putting all these prompts out there. Yeah. And um, that's why I find it so compelling. And rather than it being a statement i think it you know it, it like i said it's a prompt that that helps people talk about these things that are you know very present in our in our culture and beyond those interpretations though it's also got just a hell of a performance by Kate oh Kate you've really Blanchett. convinced that's the person right i forget that it's kate I yeah, yeah absolutely i mean she's so good uh, um 
and uh, same with the co-star. Who? Uh, oh my gosh, I'm I'm the other com- the rival composer that no she no her wow. her wife. Uh, boy, now I'm mad at myself. Uh, well, she's in movies by Christian Petzold, Barbara, and, and uh, Phoenix. Boy, I'm embarrassed. Hassan, uh, Hassan, not Elizabeth Hassan. No, I'm, I'm, yeah, all right, Nina Haas. All right, Nina Haas. But I was thinking, yeah. I thought they meant Mark Strong. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, he was good too. Right, but yeah. uh, Nina Haas is just yeah. outstanding. Um, but it would convince me. With I don't want to. If you haven't seen it yet, please do. Uh, the ending where she's still going through this identity that she has of herself. Right. This I'm above all of this, and then she's composing for Monster Hunter. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I mean. And you could take it that that's my swallow my pride, but also that is your pride too. But that's also her identity as well. Yeah. And is Monster Hunter a dig, or is that a, you know, who art is art, no matter what, you know, if it's but she's yeah, if it's the Berlin Orchestra or Monster Hunter. Um, but craft wise, I love the framing of it, the cinematography, every yeah. camera choice. It looks like it's just dedicatedly placed there was great care and craftsmanship with the whole production of this yeah and especially her house looks like the long narrow house where everything is kind of confined and is sometimes she doesn't really share a scene with anybody right but even when you focusing on the other people you hear her talking yeah. she's everywhere in this movie and yeah. yeah and she can be predatorial but she doesn't think she is she's just motivating right right <laughs> yeah um yeah, and and how she's grooming her her students and um, or her female students. You know, I think these are these are all fascinating uh, details yeah, in that, the movie. That and, dilapidated building is almost like you went into the catacombs. You went into the maze and got mm-hmm. disoriented, and you yeah. came out damaged. Right? Yeah. So and the score by you know Icelandic composer. Um, Hilder uh, Guanatoder, uh, that's, you know, I can remember her name, but I can't remember <laughs> Nina Haas's. Um She also did um, music for another movie we talked about. Um, I think, was it Women Talking? The same composer. I think it, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. the same composer for that as well, yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a spare but intense movie, and uh, Kate Blanchett is just outstanding. I think she's she's given the best performance of the year, I think. Yeah. I would look for uh, probably Best Picture, uh, obviously, best director nomination for Todd. He'd probably be a odds-on favorite to win. And, could, it could yeah. be. I could see it being too arty for a lot of people. Um, yeah, and, and probably she'd probably get nominated for best actress too. Yeah, I would imagine that's yeah. so. Um, yeah. I would hope so. Same yeah. for Nina Haas. Yeah. All right. Um, number, I would think number seven for me. You and I both in agreement. I don't know where it is for you. I don't know what Variety is thinking is considered one of the worst movies of the year, but it's Bones and All. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that now or later? Yeah, we can talk about it now. Okay. Um, people are calling it, and I would categorize, I, we always like to categorize things, but this is a romance horror movie. Sure. Rather than a horror romance movie. I think the horror is not the dominant force in it. Mm-hmm. And also, and also is one of those things of don't write safe, right? Characters that you kind of get repulsed by of, but you also have an enduring quality to them. Yeah. I really love this movie and I, sh- I've tried every reason not to like it and I still continue to like it even more. Yeah. Um, uh, it's something that I instantly fell in love with. It's a, it's a movie that hits 
all of my pleasure centers. Uh, I, I think that it's, <laughs> it's so well made. Like Luca Guadagnino is, is a great filmmaker and I, I really love most of his movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, I am love was, was my first, um, Guadagnino movie and then bigger splash is outstanding. And I really enjoyed Suspiria and call me by your name. But I think yeah. this is each one of those films. I think I have maybe a little nitpick with, and this is just kind, yeah. of, kind of perfect. I have no qualms about anything that happens in this movie. Uh, I have no reservations whatsoever. It's, you know, oddly disturbing, oddly relatable, very endearing, romantic, uh, you know, coming of age movie, uh, a road movie, all of these things that on their own or even in combination would be cliches, yet they never feel like a cliche here. Yeah. Um, even setting it in the 80s, which is so overdone these days. Um, I didn't even know it was in the 80s until they pull out a roadmap and they're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, wait a minute. You know, the, the score uh, by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross was very subtle and... Um, which is surprising for... Trent Reznor kind of a thing to be anticipating. Yeah, he's yeah. Uh, you know great, a great composer. I think those two, um, you know, yeah. they did Soul, they you know Social Network. Uh, I think they're they really support a movie instead of distract from from a movie, which is something that um, not a lot of not every composer can say. Um, we have like, like it's based on the book on the same title. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which won a bunch of awards when it came out. But I, I I love it. I, it's it's one of those things like it's they be treated like it's a genetic disposition, sure, rather than almost like an addiction. Yeah, that they have this thing. Then it not really just gives them superpowers, but they also you can sort with almost a radar sense. Oh, you're one of them too. Yeah, and, and then I, you have this culture going around. And know? I like that they don't feel the need to define it. That it's not. Um, it, they don't say that it's oh it's you know. A, specific type of human or you know you're a superhuman or or whatever it's just kind of this is just how we live and we accept that and we're not trying to put a label on it um and yeah maybe they do have superpowers or something but it's not like a superhero movie per se um but it's something that they live with and i'm trying to it's not like it's not like alcoholism because the most important part of this movie is when they meet the kentucky people the woods that Sure. We recognize you from resistance, what you are, and yeah. they start talking about it. And then she's like, I, I have it, but I'm not as crazy as you guys. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like I have a different level. Like you guys, yeah, you're different. You're in a different world. And then, of course, with Sully, it's really interesting when even though you watch the movie that, how do you run into these people all the time? Am I missing something? <laughs> it's almost like vampires are out here. And we, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, if they could smell each other, I guess, so maybe they sort of make that happen. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I think oh, I've read a lot of interpretations that it's about addiction. I also feel like maybe, you know, in relation to one fine morning that it's kind of about how we process and move through life. Like, you know, as, as we don't remember a lot from our childhood, you know, we remember kind of big moments and yeah. then there are a lot of blank spots. Well, she's searching for her authentic self, right? Right. And I love that's my core. Are you searching for your authentic self and you're not writing safe? Right. <laughs> These are doing both. Right. And I think she's trying to balance it out. Do I embrace this? Do I suppress this? Do I out there in the world or can I just, am I a predator or just have to feel feed a need? Yeah. Um, this is not the first time 
we've done cannibalism in horror movies. We've done Broad. There's a movie called Feed and also, which yeah. treats it like an addiction. But here I think it's almost like a genetic disposition. The effect in reinforcement when they meet the mom, which sure. uh, unrecognizable Chloe Savini. I didn't know it was her at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, com- comparing it to Julia DeCarno's Roz is uh, a perfect example. It's a genetic, um, it's passed down from one you know, family member to the next in Raw as well. Um, yeah. And I don't know that it's, you know, it's hereditary or something like that. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I found the the sentiments about uh, processing life and just kind of using, you know, yeah. e- eat, e- eating what you can from life and then moving on and, and eating we what you can. We just flow into one next yep. and journey to the next. And tra- and, transitions mostly about, right? Right, yeah, and you have big moments where you eat bones and all, and and those are the big moments in or your just life. Just have a nice, remember. quiet moment in the kitchen with Timothy Chalamet. Right, right. Uh, yeah. yeah, I really like Taylor Russell too. I thought she was outstanding. I've I've never really, um, you know, I've seen her in Escape Room and and the sequel, but I've never really paid much attention to her. Yeah. Uh, and Timothy Chalamet is uh, was great again. It's it's a very uh, similar performance to. Uh, maybe Little Women or, or Call Me By Your Name, but um, I think they're both doing great work here. All right. Uh, number six for you. Uh, number six is Nope. Wonderful. Uh, uh, so I th- personally feel that this is Jordan Peele's um, most accomplished movie, fully realized movie. Um, I think it's you know accessible yet in, uh, unconventional in certain ways. It's it's blockbuster sized, but it's also you know about this investigation of our obsession with spectacle. Um, yeah, many people are calling it Jaws meets Close Encounters. I mean, thrown together, but um, sure, yeah. I can I can see see that, but I think he's got a lot more on his mind. He's using Spielbergian elements to um, for the entertainment aspect of it, but I think he's also tackling things such as you know kind of the erasure of of black faces in hollywood black faces black black people you know in hollywood you're also part of hollywood but you're not really you're just a rancher you know there's some dynamics play into that as well there's also you're not really you know the um capturing something is far more important than you know, snagging the predator, actually catching it on film, right? Sure, and yeah. I think you know, just you know, putting you know Kiki Palmer and Daniel Kaluuya in in this film is you know putting them center to to the movie that we're watching is is yeah. part of his commentary uh, going back to you know Edward Moy Bridges. There's a lot more speaking to it than just being a horror movie from something yeah. from outer yeah. space or something. Like that. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a movie where essentially a big UFO slash eye is sucking everything into it. Um, like a monster and you know that that's at once kind of an unambiguous metaphor but it's also um, a really inventive one and something that could have been just Jordan Peele's UFO movie um, but in, in a way it's exactly what Jordan Peele's UFO movie should be which is this rich commentary uh, that deals with race and and viewership and Hollywood and and um, also has these you know strange flashbacks to this animal attack on a on a TV set and why are we so attracted to that and I think it's dealing it's grappling with a lot of things that um, the average blockbuster doesn't deal with and it does I it in, in a very entertaining way to where this is personally my favorite theater going experience of the year um, I saw it at an IMAX screening 
with a huge screen and you're sitting back and the, the sky is filling uh, the screen and your your head is moving around and you're just kind of looking around in the skies to try to find this UFO. And that's exactly what he wants us to do. That's exactly what he wants us to do at that moment. Yeah. Just searching the skies. And that's not that's not an experience you can have on your phone or even on your big screen TV. Um, you're not going to be moving your head around. Uh, and I think that, you know, however insignificant that may seem to some, it's just a reminder of why, like, we need to see movies on the big screen. I, I got the whole feeling of the whole theme of it is mind your surroundings and actually take a look around the whole scope of things. Sure. Rather than focus on your own little world. Sure. And that if you just, yeah, look up once in a while. Right, right. <laughs> or, um, you know, branch out a little bit. Yeah, I got that. And the music is a wonderful play on it as well. He samples a little bit of music that's incorporates it. Another another interesting thing he's talking about with his themes. But he's, yeah, Jordan, I think he's found his right mixture, a recipe, what he wants to do with movies. And I think he's got exactly what he wants to do with Nope. And is there's something more going on than just a monster in the sky is sucking everything up. Yeah, and I think it's impressive that even after just three movies, he's got such a clear vision and voice. Um, you know, Get Out was obviously a, a huge watershed moment in in, yeah. in cinema this century. Um, Us, I think, was a little less successful, but this, I think, uh, really kind of solidifies his perspective and his showmanship. Number six for me is She Said from Maria Schrader. Yeah. Um, it's a little high for a lot of people. I see it a little bit. I mean, their 20s and 30s of one of the best films. Sure. A little high for me, but it really was encapsulated by the whole process of the movie. It's going to get compared to Spotlight. It's the same kind of temperament, very much like uh, All the President's Men. That's probably the big minus for it. Um, I understand the screenplay had 2,000 scenes in it, so they had to compress what yeah. Rebecca Linowitz wanted. Um, Rebecca Lequinitz, I can't remember her last name. She wrote a screenplay. Another one that's coming out called Hot Milk, which Jesse Buckley is going to be doing. Um, But I did like the story. It's based on a book. I thought it was based on the article, but obviously the reporters did a book too. And uh, once again, Carrie Mulligan's doing the heavy lifting, as always. And I just thought it was a capsuling movie for me. Um, They did film it in the New York Times building which is fascinating. So I did like the whole aspects of it. Um, we talked about it on Kyle and Nick on film. If you want to wait for the episode, where I talk more about it, but I really liked it. Yeah. So did I, um, that this was a, uh, another movie that I saw at the twin cities film fest and, um, just the audience was cheering <laughs> by the end. Uh, and I think that it's something that reminds you why this is so important. Um, it's also, I mean, we should, not that anyone should be remo- reviewing a movie based on its box office, but this is one of the biggest bombs of the year, um, unfortunately. Uh, well, it's, let's yeah. go see a movie tonight. We want to see something about the investigator Harvey Weinstein, and it's pretty new in people's mind, and like, God, it's got to be a down. No, I don't want to see that. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, what? I mean, there's just news recently in the last week about uh, a new Weinstein conviction. And so, yeah, maybe it's a little too soon. Um, you know, maybe it's, uh, who, who knows why the movie bombed, uh, overcrowded theaters, you know, there's a lot of like bones and all bombed too. Um, 
there's just a lot of stuff in theaters right now, but I, I wish people would see this because I, I think uh, a lot of people would like it. It's a solid, solid journalistic thriller. It feels a little bit more sanitized for what the content is. Maybe that's not something that takes place in minus, but I do like the process of how they investigate it. I mean, if you want to even attach Zodiac, it's kind of like that film of sure. investigative journalism, but the, the whole process of this could collapse at any moment of how to get this out there, yeah. that every step of the way it could have just collapsed in their face and just for all the work for nothing. It also has one of my uh, favorite supporting performances of the year, which is Samantha Morton's uh, turn as, uh, yeah, I, I, she was the assistant, I believe. Yes. Um, um, and, you know, Samantha Morton ha- has her own history with the British, Weinstein. the British uh, at the dinner scene. Yeah. 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 Um, so she has her own history with Weinstein, which is, which makes her uh, inclusion in the movie, yeah, you know, actually kind of an Judd extra pers- textual, yeah. you, you know, of interest. Uh, but she's so impassioned in that performance. Um, another, another actor this year who really gave, great supporting performances she um was also in the whale which is a movie that i didn't love uh at all but she's quite good in it yeah that's what i'm hearing if you like the performances but eh, yeah from the whale yeah. yeah she said number uh number five for you uh number five for me is happening uh this is a uh, french drama directed by audrey dewan uh, this is her feature debut um i'm seeing this a lot on a lot of international film critics list this movie happening yeah it's it's outstanding um she adapted it from a novel by annie uh Erno. um i think i'm pronouncing that right probably and it's about a french college student who in uh, 1963 um comes down with what they call the illness that only strikes women and and turns them into housewives so this um She's she's pregnant. She's pregnant. Um, Anne uh, is the main Which character. You, that's a big no-no when you're going to college. Yeah. Right. Well, I in mean, that time. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, abortions are illegal at this point in France. Yeah. Um, and she is looking to acquire an illegal abortion. Uh, the actress who's playing her, Anna Maria Vartolome. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I hope. Um, so she's trying to get an abortion. Her doctor um, won't even talk about it. She goes to see another doctor and they kind of manipulate her a little bit. And eventually she just kind of has to go through, you know, sort of a um, underground abortionist. Uh, it's a it's a very unflinching movie. It's also very realistic. Uh, you're immersed in her subjectivity. Um, the camera yeah. work is very um, not flashy. And you feel, uh, as I as I said, um really one with the main character and going through every every piece of anxiety that she's feeling french is um, going through some very solemn serious filmmaking um <laughs> well i mean at yeah. least in the if we're going by the two examples that i have yes. yeah the last um, well the la- recent years there were some very s- s- solemn yeah sure yeah i, I we're think far away from amelie that's what i'm trying to <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. Uh, the, at least what's being imported yeah there's yep. there's uh, a lot of serious with a capital s dramas yep. being imported um so i think it, it really grapples with how you know a woman's independence and her career very really, poignant now yeah yeah um uh, but you know the whole trajectory of her life is at stake um, with this decision. So I saw this at uh, the Minneapolis St. Paul International Film Festival, and I saw it about a week 
before when there were only just rumblings of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And the audience, you could just feel the tension. Um, it's an uncomfortable viewing. It's not, you know, a pleasant right. experience. But I think given uh, what's transpired in the last, you know, 10 months, um, well, less than 10 months uh, in, in the U.S., it's a, it's a necessary viewing. Yeah. Um, it reminded me a lot of uh, four months, three weeks, two days, and um, never rarely, sometimes, always, which is another another great drama by Eliza Hitman. If uh, if you want to seek that out, do um, you know if this is going to be their official selection for submitting to the Academy? Uh, I don't. Um, okay. I'm not sure what they're. Or what is they're it submitting. going to be Saint Omer? It's going to be one or the other, maybe. Yeah, yeah. it might. It might be one fine. Uh, one fine morning too. One fine morning who, who, who can them, yeah. say? Um, yeah, I'm not really sure, but for me, this was one of the year's most just unforgettable films that stayed with me. Um, yeah, you know, for for oh, since the festival and that screening is just and that moment of seeing it uh, right before Roe v. Wade got overturned is such a timing uh, is everything in film. Yeah, uh, that said, I think it would still be powerful without that, right. and and I really hope people seek it out despite me saying that it's deeply uncomfortable. The happening. All right, number five for me is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I don't know if you have it on yours. I do. All right. Uh, surprisingly, I really was well, one of these, another one, I wanted to not like this movie. Uh, every, when everybody tells me, you really like this, you should see it, you should see it, I have this natural response to, no, I don't want to. Yeah. And I finally sat down after a couple months and saw this movie, and I really enjoyed it. It feels like two different movies at once. It is high-octane roller coaster you know we had a lot of a high octane movies just i'm thinking bullet train but also has a sentimental variable component to it that like i like that we are dealing with a, a universe that deals with variables and varieties not in absolutes yeah and i think that's what i love about this movie is about your variety and not all the, not everything is set in stone not everything <laughs> we know about the ending but um your fate is not always predetermined. You can also manipulate it any way you want to, too. I'd love the message it was sending out. Yeah, I, I mean, this is an overwhelming movie. This is, yeah. um, when I first saw it, I felt exhausted afterward. <laughs> um, but it was also, again, you know, just a very memorable theater experience because they're, uh, Daniels are able to put everyone in the audience uh, in each moment, and everyone's reacting the same way, and despite what is ultimately so chaotic. Um, yeah. I mean, it took them five years to figure out how to make this movie. And even even knowing what I do about filmmaking, I, I can't even begin to imagine all the... Reshooting from the same building and, yeah, and, you get, and then all the chaos. Yeah. Well, uh, somebody had to come up and clean that up for the other, right, yeah. Universes worth of, of, of material in here that's all edited together and yeah. seamless and intentional and and um, plus it's just bizarre. I mean, there are so many weird, you know, absurdist things happening. Um, surreal humor. Things put in or orifices. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think it really captures in, in, in a year at least the last 12 months where movies like Spider-Man No Way Home and um, and Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness, I mean, those movies feel like jokes compared to this. I mean, it, they deal with a couple of, you know, a couple of universes, and, and this yeah. one is really... I know you can get some hot dog fingers for Christmas if you want some. Yeah. It's a, a hot dog finger gloves if you want. A24 is selling that stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I it had, feels like a lot, right? But yeah. it also is a very simple story of you can always change your trajectory of the story that you of your own life. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's dealing with you know these generational divides and cultural divides, and I think the the symbolism of of the multiverse just being kind of how the world is a very overwhelming place and we're all sort of overwhelmed by the 24-hour news cycle and social media and you know extremist politics and all, all this other nonsense is coming at us at all times and it's easy to yeah, lose it's a bombardment right right bombardment right and the universe is a donut yeah bagel bagel right, right. bagel or i can't remember bagel darn it there was a lot to take in yeah yeah um but i really liked it i really enjoyed it and it's one of those like I'm going to force you to make me like this. And damn it, you did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I know a lot of a lot of people were saying that. I, I guess I, I saw it before some of that some of that talk started to happen. And I was one of those people who was who was singing its praises. And it's yeah, it's a movie that holds up really well. That whose, whose chaos holds up really well on a second viewing. But it becomes clearer, I think, on a second viewing, and you yeah. and you get the emotional message sort of sinks in. Uh, more the second time. It really is. You'll laugh, you'll cry, yeah. and you'll eat all your popcorn and come out exhausted. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, number four. Uh, my number four was. Now I should I should preface this by saying my top four are pretty interchangeable. At any point as I was making this list, you know, number four was in the number one spot, or number three was in the number one spot. Yeah. Um, so these are all sort of one through four for me. Um, my number four is uh, the Fablemans. The Wonderful, next... that's number four for me. <laughs> oh, great, perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it's Steven Spielberg has been telling the story to you know reporters and to biographers and and just kind of self mythologizing, and I think that's now complete with this movie. It's it's such a He's been telling the story about you know seeing the greatest show on earth and yeah. and his parents and. Um, his, his mother being sort of the artistic type and his father being the technical type and him just sort of being this uh, amalgamation of both. Uh, you know, he's very sentimental, yet he's also yeah. just a brilliant technical filmmaker. Um, I and think it's not a straight autobiography. He's no, he's making a movie first, which is crucial to Spielberg. Yeah. It is yeah. a movie. It's, com- it's compressing a lot of content, even right. for an autobiographical film. And I never feel like it's an autobiographical film. I just think it's encapsulating a movie. Yeah. Right. And yet he's w- winking at the audience. You know, there are moments with, uh, um, what is it, Gabriel LaBelle? Is that his name? The, yeah, Gabriel LaBelle. The, the He's the he, the teen version of, of... Oh, the teen, okay. And, yeah, his encounter with the bully and saying, you know, uh, promise never to tell, you know, this story. And he says, I'll promise. And, you know, the, these cute moments where he's sort of winking at the audience about, yeah, I'm telling the story, of course, and I'm owning my own story. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's he's reframing his he's reframing a story through fiction. And of course, yes, it's auto fiction. It's it's um, which is maybe a theme in my list is I'm really, really fascinated by auto. Well, like Judge Hurst explained to him, you want to be an artist, it's going to tear you apart. Right. It's going to make you cry. You can you, you, you concentrate more on your family, and then your family's like, what are you leaving us alone for? No, it's a whole great speech yeah. that Judd has explained the whole you know thing that I think Spielberg's been struggling with his whole life. He wanted to be a family man, but he wants to be an artist and all. Mm-hmm. Right. And then his tumultuous relationship with his his real father, and, you know, 
and then he understands his mother was super talented yeah. and she threw it away to be, you know, mom, housekeeping mom. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And Michelle Williams is outstanding and Paul yeah. Dano's great. Um, I mean, Seth Rogen even, uh, I think disappears into his right, role. I forgot he was, as soon as I talked about, I forgot he was in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he's so charming and, and funny in that. And, uh, his relationship with Michelle Williams character is very kind of tender and, and, uh, yeah, the child acting is was great, and just the scenes of filmmaking. Um, I think there's, you know, maybe just being a film nerd, I, I just love watching people make a movie in a movie. Yeah, he talked about um, he put toilet paper on wet toilet paper on his face and tearing off his face. Something that he used yeah. in Poltergeist and the zombie yeah. movies and the shootout with the the club. You know, the Boy Scouts is kind of very much Indiana Jones kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so yeah. it's nice to see all those kind of touch points. Uh, throughout Spielberg's career in here, yet it never feels like it's taking a victory lap. I don't think it feels like it's its own thing, right? Uh, which is essential for this to work and for it to feel authentic. Yeah, and uh, the ending—that's what did it for me. You yeah. got David Lynch. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. That that Lynch scene was perfect, and that the last little camera move was perfect. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, from a technical level, I I think it's as best movie since minority report which is one of my favorites of his and is i agree i agree with you and kyle doesn't i think he's been kind of even with book of bridge of spies he's been kind of going through the motions which is still a masterful skill for a craftsman doing film but i think he finally found something that he really could do you know what he always wanted to do and probably was hesitant to do it because not a lot of people get to make a full feature film with a lot of money yeah about your life yeah um, I, I mean, I'm a huge Spielberg fan, so I mean, there aren't too many missteps that, oh, that he right. has for me. I mean, the BFG and Hook and maybe Always, but uh, uh, personally, I like his 21st century work. I I find it more mature and, and um, very entertaining. You know, obviously not as good as his earlier stuff, but... Um, yeah, because he I'm, got trapped into that, what was called empty escapism movies. Yeah, he was labeled an empty escapist, and then he kind of did, you know, a movie with Christian Bale, Empire of the Sun, and then, you know, Color Purple, and then after that kind of took filmmaking a little more aesthetic, a little more... Sure, yeah. Mature, Uh, grown up a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, anyway, his 21st century work has been really great. I think this is is just an outstanding film, and I I wish more people would see it. Uh, I think they'll be surprised. I do, too. Yeah, the, how accessible it is and how um, not navel gazing it is, even though it is, I guess it's a movie, right? It's not a documentary. It's not, yeah, yeah. You it's, never. It doesn't feel like just Spielberg um, being nostalgic, uh, overly nostalgic. It feels like him telling a, a genuine, tender story. This is me being awkward, and all I want to do is make movies. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I looked like maybe a Best Picture nomination for this one. Um, maybe oh, I don't know about that. Not a Best Picture nomination? I, I'd be surprised. I think I think it's box yeah. office failure. Um, box office speaks a lot to Oscar voters. Okay. Um, and but because, I'm going to shout out Michelle Williams does get a nomination for oh, this. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. That was pretty weird. Yeah. All right. So that was both number four for us. So yeah. number three for you. Uh, my number three is is Bones and All. Wonderful. So we we talked. You about really it. did like that movie. Yeah, I loved it. Uh, I mean, it's something that I. You can. I, my wife couldn't go with me to um, 
to the screening and I wanted to watch it again and, and had no, you know, just enjoyed it on every level a second time. Uh, number three for me is from South Korea, Park Chan-wook, uh, Decision to Leave. I don't know if you were, haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's available, but um, I think this is his best work since The Handmaiden. Or uh, maybe this, you know, because he's used to the, those violent movies. I did like Lady Vengeance, but here, this is a this feels unorganized chaos to me. It just it's saturated. It's highly stylized. It's his kind of version of Vertigo, I would say. Um, but I really did like it. Um, Boston Film Critics site labeled it as the best edited film of the year. I would say it's one of my top best edited films. I really did like the editing of this movie. And yeah. I liked it overall. A decision to leave really. I was surprised with it. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it uh, as well. It's probably, you know, it's definitely in like my top 25. Um, I, maybe my issues with it stem from sort of the ending, which I don't want to uh, spoil, but it is a just a technically brilliantly made movie. Yeah. Um, uh, the way that he deals with technology and shifting perspective uh, according to technology um, is really fascinating. And, you know, he's dealing with phones and gizmos that um, we all deal with in our daily life, but don't really often get handled in a movie very well. No, I, we were talking about it when our critique about, you know, the correspondence of phones, like in bro, uh, Bros, they did a good job with that, of correspondence of phones, like, hey, sure. hey, what's and how that feels natural. But this one, it feels like a crucial element. It doesn't seem awkward at all. It seems like part of the film. Absolutely. Part of the world. Yeah. And he did like it. It's very stylized. It's very shot with great delicate and care, like he always does with movies, and all the reenactments of how the murder investigation and everything seems so simple. But underneath, of course, it's all very complex. Yeah, yeah. Decision to leave is number three for me. Great. So are we on to number two? Yes, we are. Uh, my number two is everything, everywhere, all at once. Wonderful, man. Yeah. We already, yeah. I know you really like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a second viewing ultimately did it for me. Um, you know, the first one I was pretty exhausted and <laughs> and just like, oh, that was maybe too much. Um, but a second viewing really kind of solidified the emotional aspect for me and drove home the the purpose, which for me was just the the universe is chaos and focus on what you can control, yeah. uh, which is the ones close to you and. Um, I found that to be a very tender message in a movie that is absolutely insane from start to finish and super fun, super funny, awesome martial arts, great performances. I mean, Michelle Everything Yeoh is, wrong, yeah. is great. Um, Kihua Kwan, uh, which I'm sure I'm butchering his he name. He might get a supporting actor. Now. Yeah, he was maybe my favorite supporting actor role. Um, and Stephanie Hsu, uh is just outstanding. Um, this is the daughter that... Mom, you're overbearing to I'm the villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, to, to take such a complex idea and make it um, accessible remain, reminds me of like Inception, where that is such a complex idea yeah. dealing with, you know, various time frames and whatnot. Yet Nolan made it super accessible and any, everyone in the audience got what was going on. My mom got what was going on in Inception. <laughs> and Anyone in the audience gets what's going on in in everywhere in this movie. It, it's just it, they they break it down in, in such a sophisticated way um, that's deceptive uh, because it's such a wild wild ride and yet it's so simplistic in a way. 
Uh, number two for me was Tar. So uh, before we get to our number ones, I just want to recap. Number 10 for me was Women Talking. Nine, Pearl. Eight, Glass Onion. Seven, Bones and All. Six, She Said. Five, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Number four, The Fablemans. Number three, Decision to Leave. Number two, Tar. Number one for me, of course, The Banshees of Inisherin. Great. I did like that one, really. And to cop it off here with Brian, his number one film, and of course he already mentioned all top four can be interchangeable, but what is number one for you? Should right I do now? a full countdown? Yeah. Okay. For all Brian, right. yeah, go all ahead and right. do your full countdown. All right. So my 10 was X and Pearl, a tie. Nine was Banshees of Inertian. Uh Eight, One Fine Morning. Seven was Tar. Uh, six was Nope. Five was Happening. Uh, four was The Fablemans. Three was Bones and All. Two was everything, everywhere, all at once, and my number one. Any guesses? I have no idea. Crimes of the Future. Oh, you tell me and I forget. Yes, David Cronenberg going back to what he's famous for. Yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Cronenberg is a favorite director of mine. I think um, you know his body horror stuff is is. I, I like his non body horror stuff as much as I like his body horror stuff, but. Um, this is his first original screenplay since, I think, Existence. Uh, his first body horror movie since that movie as well. Um, in a way, it's a little self-reflexive because he's, you know, borrowing from his own film title. He made a short film uh, in 1970, also called Crimes in the Future, that's completely unrelated. Uh, look up that synopsis. It's a, it's a <laughs> completely bizarre movie uh, that has nothing to do with this one. Um, why that was done, I'm not really sure. Uh, this one originally was developed out of a screenplay for a movie called Painkillers, and it takes place in a future where we've evolved to the point where some people no longer feel physical pain, and so the lines between pain and pleasure are blurring. Um, did you see this? No. Okay. I've been waiting for an opportunity. Okay. Um, and the, the, the thrust of the story involves two artists, um, played by Viggo Mortensen and Leah yeah. Seydoux, um, giving another great performance this year, uh, Leah Seydoux. Um, and there are these underground artists who attempt to, uh, in a very Cronenberg Cronenbergian way, uh, reclaim their body through art. Um, this is something, this is a theme that's sort of been in his work since Crash, uh, before crash even um, reclaiming one's body for their own purposes um, meanwhile yeah. evolution in this period is making it so um, given all the microplastics that we're eating on a daily basis I mean every and this we're is all eating them yeah we're, we're it's in our bloodstream right now um, people have have evolved to where they're developing new organs. Um, and so those organs are being removed and sort of in cataloged this movie, yeah, in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, not in real life. It's in this movie. Um, but so, it's also so his central theme is this fixation can contaminate or disfigure you, right? It's something like Fly, um, Crash, sure, um, sure. And, even Dead Ringers or something like that. Or um, And in some cases, that's not always a problem. Like video, right, Videodrome is not necessarily a problem, but it changes you physically also right what you are and, and so the theme of this movie i would say is just kind of going with the flow <laughs> and learning to adapt um despite change uh and i think that 
it's it's a welcome acceptance to kind of the natural evolutions of the body and to art and expression. Um, I really love those themes about it. Um, and I think it villainizes, like literally within the plot, uh, traditions in a way that has a lot to say about what's happening, you know, just um, in the culture war, if that's what you want to call it right now. Um, so it's, it's a film that I, I really couldn't get out of my head all year. And, um, I've just been thinking about in that, uh, we're all dealing with kind of nature and, and political change and, and physical change and, and how you meet that is, is important. Um, some people rally against it and some people don't. And I, and Viggo Mortensen has this moment where he just sort of accepts, uh, what's been happening to him. And it's a beautiful moment. It's something unlike anything Cronenberg has, has done in any of his movies. Um, this is also just a very odd movie. I mean, uh, you know, there were stories of walkouts and whatnot at, at the Cannes Film Festival. and, and Well, you got to know what you're getting into. When, yeah. yeah, yeah. E- e- even despite all that, I would say I don't think it's like the most vile thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, there are certainly horrific moments but i was never revulsed um even though i have a pretty high tolerance level for that sort of thing um i I never found myself pushed to the limit i think it's uh i think it's so interested in its ideas and characters that the physical you know mutations and and the quote-unquote gore is not uh, it's an afterthought it's right. a, it's the paint on the paintbrush i think overall cronenberg likes to say that nothing is stagnated we're always changing. Sure. Yeah. We're always, yeah. Everything is changing. Absolutely. Whether you pay attention or not. And to fight it, you're going to make things worse. Yeah. Or you accelerate it, you make things worse. Right. Or you try to cheat the system or whatever. It's going to make things worse. So you just have to embrace the change. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a great um, commentary for our times. Yeah. It's uh, maybe what you might call a return to form for Cronenberg, though I would argue that his, you know, 20th, 21st century work has all been about similar things just without the body horror. Yeah. Um, it's, I, you know, I'm still cheerleading spider. Yeah. I love spider. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think, you know, everything he's made in the, in the 21st century has been great on some level or another. And admittedly, uh, after his last movie, uh, maps to the stars, I didn't think he was going to make another movie again. I thought he burned a few bridges in Hollywood and maybe, uh, not that he's making movies in Hollywood, but, um, you know, money brokers or whatnot, that he's just not going to be making movies anymore. Um, but he's, but he's, but he's back. back. Yeah. <laughs> and his son's making movies too. Brandy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think they're a little, uh, they're fine. Yeah. They're fine. Yeah. We won't get Rick and Morty without Cronenberg. Yeah, I mean, right. disgusting and... Yeah, he Cronenberg it all up. Right, yeah. yeah. You don't get incest babies and <laughs> Rick and Morty without right. Cronenberg saying, yeah, make it yucky. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. Make yeah, it uncomfortable. I, I think he's doing it in a way that's that's entertaining. I think he's you know, getting really peculiar, uh, fun performances out of out of Viggo Mortensen and Leah Seydoux and especially Kristen Stewart. Yeah. Uh, I don't think people give Cronenberg enough credit for being kind of funny. 
Um, and he, this, he knows it. And this yeah. movie is very funny um, in very bizarre ways. I mean, surgery is the new sex is kind of this line that, that permeates throughout the movie, yeah. uh, or at least conversation about the movie. And it's such a silly, absurd idea that uh, he's always kind of waking at his audience, I think. Uh, he is this. one bizarre biology teacher if he ever had one. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, this is the movie that uh, is at once kind of a personal favorite and and one that I think is just technically um, extremely well made and exactly what I was hoping for from Cronenberg's return to this this genre. He's very much, uh, I would say someone else is very comparison, very much like uh, Robert Eggert. He's kind of developing his own genre. Sure, sure. Um, as well, we didn't talk about the Northman, but you can tell that he's he's got his own little style fitted out as well. Yeah, and he doesn't mind getting it kind of yucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I learned that we, he's doing his own version of Nosferatu. Yeah, he's which been is going to be about interesting. That for a while. Yeah. So yes, we would like uh, David to do more movies. That's it for the year. Uh, we're looking for another great year in 2023. There's already a month of great stuff coming out. So thank you. Again, Brian, for coming and giving your list. Thanks for having me. Uh, if anybody, how can you find your reviews? Uh, I'm at deepfocusreview.com. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd at uh, Deep Focus Review. Uh, I also have a Patreon, uh, which is... Yep. We'll put the link down below. Awesome. Yeah, that's with just Patreon slash... Uh, Patreon.com slash Deep Focus Review. Um, yeah, that's about it. Wonderful. All right. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening, and we'll do it all again next time.